Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Song of Solomon is an interesting and unique book in the entire canon of the Bible. It is in this portion of the Old Testament that we call wisdom and poetry. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and and part of Psalms are considered wisdom literature. They help us live um, faithful lives to apply the principles of God in our life, to look around and see how we use knowledge into understanding, into application, which is wisdom. We have the rest of this portion, which is poetry. Much of the Psalms is poetry. And Song of Solomon gets placed here because it is a book of poetry as well. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so for that reason, we have turned it into an allegory um, that everything stands for something else that isn't literally what it's talking about. Very much like the book Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with it. And some translations lean very heavily into this. The King James Version leans heavily into an allegorical translation. Try reading it in some other versions, if that's the one you're using primarily to get a feel for how um, every translation doesn't make it allegorical. For those who practice the Jewish faith, they see the woman as Israel and the man as God. For Christians, um, including our own John Wesley, they wanted to interpret this as the woman being the church or believers and the man being Jesus. Um, So from the earliest times, it has also been seen as an expression of love between human beings and God. And this book and the the themes that are taken up in here have been the basis of ecstatic experiences that ancient church mothers and fathers have had down through time and have written about, particularly in the medieval times. This book is a joyful celebration of love. It is love poetry and it is, it's pretty racy. This couple's desire for one another leads them to overcome all the obstacles that thwart their passion. And be, this desire to interpret it allegorically is how people say that's the only way it belongs in Scripture, is if it tells us something about humans' relationship with God. I also think it is a counterbalance to all of the war that we had in the early books. So in Exodus and Joshua and Judges, we had a lot of this war and death and blood. And this story of love becomes a counterbalance to that, that God is the God of love. Um, Its inclusion in sacred scripture affirms the value of love. And I mean, we can interpret many things. We think many of the prophets their prophecies applied to their time as well as to Jesus in the future or in, or to the second coming, which hasn't happened yet. So it can be both the actual story of what it is and a way of helping us look at the human relationship with God. 
But I don't think there's any way we can read this book without seeing that it affirms the value of love and of physical expressions of love. It's not just a description, by the way, of a married relationship, nor is it a manifesto for free love either. Um, This couple does not appear to be married. One of the scenes that we have in the book is a portrayal of of a wedding feast, but they were seeing one another before that and speaking of their physical relationship. But it does portray here a growing personal commitment to one another. This is not just free love either. Um, They're clearly not married. There's the call to steal away, come away with me. We'll run away into the fields. That's not something a married couple needed to do. And so that um, has led to people wanting to eschew this book and um, not want to take it for a literal reading about a physical relationship. If they're unmarried, then that opens questions to us about um, our strong commitment to celibacy and singleness um, as well. It doesn't call into question faithfulness in marriage, but it um, calls us to, we at least need to have a conversation about our um, celibacy and singleness. It certainly does present a very idealistic uh, portrayal of, of love and of physical love. There are six scenes in the eight chapters here. Um, I, I will say up front that it can be very hard to distinguish the speaker, whether it's the man or the woman or an external, an additional speaker happening. I'm going to try to point that out, and it becomes a little bit tedious to do. Nevertheless, we will try. The first scene of the six encompasses chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 7. It is a portrayal of a bride, a bridegroom, and their friends. We start out with the woman speaking. Um, In verse 4a, she talks about what other women are saying. And in verse 4b, that's her answer to that. Verses 5 and 6 are what she says to other women. And verse 7 is what she is saying to her lover. She is separated from her lover and she desires to be reunited. Notice that she is a dark-skinned woman. She refers to this um, several times. We find out later she is a Shunammite, um, so she is a dark-skinned person. Her vineyard, the vineyard is both a physical place um, as well as a poetic way of referring to her sexuality. In verse 7, John Wesley hears believers asking Christ to help them find a local church where their faith can flourish. In verses 7 and 8, the man speaks. Um, In verse 9, he compares her to a mare, to a strong, noble horse. I don't know that I find that particularly complimentary, but several of the ways they describe one another wouldn't be the words we would use now, but it apparently was the way they would have spoken of each other back then. Um, Calling her a strong, noble horse here um, echoes Uh, Chapter 6, verse 4, which is going to give an implication that she has control of her own destiny. Verses 12 through 14, the woman speaks again. Um, She calls him her beloved. Um, The succulent fruits that she speaks of are metaphors for sexual intimacy. The man speaks in verses 15 through 17. Um, John Wesley here saw our intimacy with Jesus. In chapter 2, 
Verse 1 could be either the woman or the man speaking. It's probably the woman because she continues to speak in verses 2 through 7. In chapter 4, she speaks of a banqueting house. This we also hear echoed in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. It also makes me think of Boaz with Ruth, where Ruth went into him at the threshing floor and he throws his cloak over her. He claims her and probably takes her physically that evening. But in 1 John, it says his banner over us is love. Um, that he covers us with his love. Wesley saw that said that these fruits that are speak, spoken of here in the allegorical interpretation would be forgiveness, faith, grace, and assurance of salvation. In verse 7, we have a refrain that is repeated in chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4. Um, love will come at its proper time. Um, this refrain may also be a caution um, against this type of alliance. Like, be careful about letting yourself fall in love because once you have triggered your desire for someone, it becomes an almost unstoppable force. Scene two is chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5. Um, this could be called a spring rhapsody. We have the vision of all of the world blooming as their love blooms. Verses 8 through 14 of chapter 2 are the woman speaking. She is sharing here what her lover has said to her. Um, he's called her a strong horse or a mare. She calls him a stag and a gazelle. In verse 9, she calls him a dove. Um, in verse 14, and this come away, my beloved, is a call to intimacy. Um, I have a devotional um, that is called Come Away, My Beloved. And so it is also can be seen as a call to intimacy with God. I also think this reinforces the idea that this couple is not yet married. Wesley hears how the church will triumph in Christ's love and will hear his call to come, to come to him, to come away from the world. In verse 15, we have a reference to foxes. Foxes are those who threaten this couple's love. For the church, this would be those who threaten faith. Um, for Wesley, he heard those who help us defend against the foxes are the ordained ministers who help the flock be um, protected from the foxes of the world. Chapter 2, verse 16, the woman speaks of him, of her lover. Verse 17, she speaks to her lover. It's it confusing that they go back and forth without these kinds of, we don't have an indication. We have to d discern it from the words of Scripture. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the woman speaks of her lover again. In chapter 2, verse 17, she sends him away at daybreak. Wesley sees this as an allusion to the end of time, when all sin will cease um, at the second coming. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, show a very intense desire. There's an intensity here. Um, there's the possibility that this may be a dream. It also probably refers to clandestine liaisons, like he sneaks in to visit her under cover of darkness, and she must send him away before the dawn breaks. And in chapter 3, verse 5, we have that repeated refrain. 
Scene three encompasses chapter three, verse six, through chapter five, verse one. The bride, the bride is waiting and the groom and his party approaches. We have a scene of a wedding processional and a reference to Solomon and his bride. This represents how the two lovers see each other as noble, as royal, as nothing better that they could imagine. Uh, Wesley, of course, in an allegorical interpretation, sees the covenant between Christ and the church that is a symbol of the marriage covenant. It is a description for him of conversion. Um, And we have the day of the wedding, the time of conversion in verse 11. It talks about a litter or a palanquin or a palki in some of the translations. It is a covered sedan that is a chair that is carried on four poles. We've probably seen this in a movie where royals are coming through and there's um, four people are carrying this platform with a chair in it that's covered so they don't get in the sun and the light and it's being carried around. And so that's the portrayal of what's happening. Verses 6 through 11 um, could be um, either the man or the woman speaking or outside an outside narrator commenting on what we're observing. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 are the man speaking. In verse 6, he refers to the mountain of myrrh. In chapter 1, verse 13, there was reference to a bag of myrrh between her breasts. Um, he, the man also speaks in verse... In chapter 4, verse 6, of a hill of frankincense, um, this is pretty racy stuff referring to private areas of the body. Um, these are not necessarily descriptions that we might like, but he's not seducing me. He's seducing her in, in her time. In verse 8, we hear a marriage proposal happening. In verse 12, There are references to a garden locked, to a fountain sealed. Those um, who who hear this as unrequited love, they want to say that the couple has never come come together before, that everything before their marriage speaks of their desire for one another, but it's not consummated. And so here they are saying her garden is still locked, her fountain is still sealed, that he is a virgin and she is a, a virgin, a virgin. Those who see them as lovers, um, which really seems to be more consistent with how scripture is portraying them here, hear this, they hear his frustration that she is not his, that she's not always available to him, that she's not yet his wife, that they are still secret and clandestine lovers. Verse 13 refers to a channel. Um, that's another quite racy reference. Verse 16, the woman speaks. She invites her lover to come to her garden, and she calls it his garden. It's for him. This She's showing evidence of her readiness to make love. I'm going to pause right here for time's sake and make this into two podcasts, so we will pick up and continue our journey through the Song of Solomon in the next podcast. Thank you.